0: Heavenly Father, we thank you for the gift of your word. We pray that you will open it to our hearts and minds, and our hearts and minds to you. Give us wills to obey you. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. It was the 5th of January, 1953, in Paris, in the Théâtre de Babylon. It's become a byword for futile waiting. And from the title, you can work out in advance that the subject of this play will not turn up. Samuel Beckett's Estragon and Vladimir in Waiting for Godot keep coming back to the refrain. Let's go. We can't go. We're waiting. We're waiting for Godot. Oh. We are people who are waiting, although with a lot more to go on than Vladimir and Estragon Last week, we left Isaiah at the the end of a chapter of almost unrelieved gloom. He was waiting for God to step in and put a stop to the dreadful things that people were doing to each other and his earth. Today, at Pentecost, we might like to remind ourselves that Jesus had promised that he would send the Holy Spirit to his disciples, and that they were to wait in the city until they were clothed with power from on high. And as Alan has commented, perhaps tonight's reading feels like a moment for which we've been waiting as we finally, at last, get to some hope. It's a long passage So let's break it into chunks to get an idea of the structure. And if you'd like to follow in the Pew Bibles, it starts on page 708. As I said, chapter 24 ended with a prophecy of a time when oppression and injustice would be stopped. Chapter 25 begins in the past tense. In verses 1 to 5, the oppressors are no more, and Isaiah is rejoicing in God's salvation. It's as if we fast-forwarded, and all the things that were promised have taken place. And then from verses 6 to 12, the focus is still on the future, In verse 6, God's salvation will be like a great banquet to which rich and poor alike are invited. Verses 7 and 8, we're told that death and sorrow will be in the past. And in verse 10, the enemies of God will be coming in for judgment. Verse 9 concerns how to live in the here and now with such a future to come. Then in chapter 26, and verses 1 to 4, we hear more about the glorious future that is to be. In 5 to 9, we look at discipleship. We're back in the here and now again. And then in verses 10 to 11, we look back once more at the oppression and suffering that the people have known. Verses 12 to 15, Isaiah speaks of the good things that God has done for Israel in punishing their oppressors. God has come to the rescue of his his people time and time again, and he will do so again. But then comes a twist. Look at verses 16 to 18. The focus switches from God's punishment of Israel's oppressors to his apparent harsh treatment of his own people. They'd been through so much and it seemed to have produced so little of benefit. Suffering that leads to greater good is more bearable than suffering that does not. And in verse 19, there comes another perplexity. What about those people who lived in faithful hope but who died Before God's plan was completed. Verse 19 answers this painful question with a clear statement that hope extends beyond the grave. Their waiting will not turn out to have been in vain. Verses 20 and 21 form a short oracle on waiting. God's wrath will be directed not against Israel this time, but against her enemies, Judgment will become comfort for Israel, rather as judgment of Egypt had become comfort for the Hebrew people. And notice the language that the writer uses uh, in those two verses, verses 20 and 21, passing by. It's, it evokes the uh, thoughts of the angel of the Lord passing over the gates of the Israelite people in Egypt. Judgment will become comfort for Israel. In the structure of these chapters, there's been a big sweep across the extremes of history. Isaiah looks backwards to the past and its agonies, and he contemplates the future and its glories. And in between these extremes lies patient, trustful waiting. One commentator that I read put it like this. This waiting is to be the hallmark of the people of God as they live out their lives in the world as it is. So there we have the structure for this sermon. The hope of salvation and the call to wait upon God. Let's look in more detail at God's salvation, and then we'll think about his call to wait patiently and trustfully for him. A rich picture of salvation emerges from these two chapters. Being saved covers a diversity of elements. In chapter 25 and verses 2 to 5, It's freedom from oppressors. In verse 8 of that chapter, salvation is the removal of the people's disgrace. Just what that disgrace was isn't exactly made clear, but it could be connected with losing the land that had been promised to them and being driven into exile, or it could be to do with the shame of their past sinful behavior of which by this time they seem to have repented whatever their disgrace may be god's hand is upon them to remove it and in chapter 26 and verse 8 we catch a glimpse of eternal of salvation from eternal death and then in chapter 26 and verse 19, it's spelt out very clearly. The dead will be raised. This is hope for the whole world, not just for God's Jewish people. Look at verse 18. They reproach themselves for not having brought salvation to the earth. The implication is that salvation is now envisaged for for the whole of humanity. Alan spoke last week of the book of Isaiah being large enough for it to contain the whole gospel. And we see that again today. Salvation is drawn holistically. It's not just about life after death, although that very important dimension receives a strong emphasis here. And we'll come back to that later in the sermon. But salvation is also to do with a better life in this world. And connected with ideas of salvation is the prospect of judgment. The oft-repeated phrase in chapters 25 and 26 is, in that day. However chaotic and confusing things seem to be at present, Isaiah is confident that the whole of human history would come together at a single point, a moment, a day that has been foreordained by God. Today, it's, a, day, it's a, a phrase that later was to influence a, a, a phrase that we encounter in the New Testament. The day of the Lord. So let's take a look at this phrase, in that day. Let's look at the second instance of it in chapter 26 and verse 1. In that day, this song will be sung in the land of Judah. We have a strong city. God makes salvation its walls and ramparts. But in order for Israel to be saved from her oppressors, the actions of those who are oppressing them have to be stopped, just as the oppressive actions of Israel herself had to stop and the nation had to repent of its ways. Judgment and salvation are related. And so we find in verse 5 of chapter 26 that he humbles those who dwell on high. He lays the lofty city low. He levels it to the ground and casts it down in the dust. God will remove what is false to raise up what is true. He will remove what is oppressive to raise up the poor and needy. God will remove the lofty city built on human arrogance to raise up the strong city, the new Jerusalem, the city of God. In this holistic picture of salvation, in which a better life on this earth for all people is envisaged, it makes perfect and logical sense that oppressors have to change their behavior or be removed. Think back to chapter 25. We read in verse 5, the song of the ruthless is stilled. And when we think of salvation as life after death, it makes sense there too. How heavenly would heaven be If we were just as we are in this life, not very heavenly, I suspect. If we don't want God to change us, he won't force us, but there'll be consequences. Salvation and judgment are related. The day of God's action will be terrible for those who oppose him. He judges and he destroys. But not out of spite, it's to bring people to their senses and to deliver those who have been on the receiving end of their injustice. Once again, we find God taking the part of the poor and needy. The message of judgment becomes a message of comfort to a people who were just about at the end of their tether. This link between salvation and judgment is a sobering thought. If we're to be judged, how can anybody not be found wanting? We had those despairing words from God's people in 26 verse 18 about their failure. We have not brought salvation to the earth. I'm sure all of us echo these thoughts. We all lament our failure to achieve for God what we'd hoped. And yet, hope persists. Hope that God hasn't given up on his people despite our failure. Again, we find that much of the picture of salvation in Isaiah is picked up in the New Testament by Jesus. It's precisely because human beings cannot make themselves worthy of heaven and are unable to save themselves that Jesus came to this earth in order to do for us what we could not do for ourselves. Salvation is God's work in us. Despite our sin and failure, we can have complete salvation, life everlasting in heaven And God's holy presence now. So salvation is not just about a judgment from which we escape. It's about a life in which we participate. And it has a dimension in this world. But it's to be completed in the next. We can't work our own way into it. It is God's work in us, and what God asks of us is that we wait patiently and hopefully for him. It's another of the refrains throughout these two chapters that God's people trust in him and wait for him. The call of God to us is to live in the reality of this world, and to work to improve that reality. And even though we know that it will be frustrating, we'll be sustained in that work by the hope that in heaven, God's purposes will eventually be made complete. So we look beyond the grave, where God's purposes will eventually be fulfilled too often belief in an afterlife has been used by Christians as an excuse for not trying to improve things in this world. But it's not a case of either or, it's both and. The vision of life in heaven is the inspiration to try to leave this world a better place than we found it, to bring those qualities into life in the here and now. But as I thought about this sermon and as I examined my own heart, I found myself not wanting to preach too much about heaven because, well, I don't know about you, but there's something that sounds almost unbelievable about it, something too good to be true, perhaps. And I wondered as I thought some more about it, whether it might strike you that way too. Whether, perhaps without realizing it, we find it easier to focus on life in this world because we're tempted to soft pedal on hope of an afterlife. And for me, I think that temptation comes from the caricature of Christians as a bunch of people who dodge the harsh realities of life with pie in the sky. Sometimes we may try to avoid that accusation by emphasising life in this world and working to make life better here and now and ignoring the hope that we have of it being completed in heaven. And there may be a grain of truth in the accusation. We admit that we don't know all the answers in this life, but that we trust that it will make sense eventually in heaven. I've examined my own heart in the past few weeks quite a bit on this one. And I've come to the conclusion that, yes, we do have to think about these things, but they don't make belief in an afterlife redundant. Ideas of heaven may seem that way to us because, by and large, life expectancy is so much higher for us. Medical conditions that struck terror into the hearts of people in the past can be treated routinely. If you know Pride and Prejudice well, written nearly 200 years ago, uh, Jane Bennett uh, is out in the rain and she catches a chill. And the family are deeply disturbed at the danger this presents to her. People in this country today would hardly think about it. Here's a quotation from somebody called Ian Morrison, a former president of the Institute for the Future. You can look up that organisation on the internet if you want to. He's musing on life and death, and he says this. In Scotland, where I was born death was seen as imminent. In Canada, where I trained, it was thought inevitable. In California, where else, where I now live, it's seen as optional. I think that's priceless. There are two problems with this. It isn't but people tend to think that it should be. Death is not an option, but people think that it should be. I meet people in their late 80s and 90s who feel outraged. You can hear the disgust in their voice that their mortality is catching up with them. They feel entitled to as many years of life as they choose. Part of the problem, I suspect, is that people these days tend to go through life thinking of it in terms of this world only. There's been a loss of that sense of the bigger picture. Life becomes a matter of getting as much as you, of what you want as you can. And the refrain is, life isn't a rehearsal. People's identities get focused on this world and its trophies. And therefore, it needs to go on for them as long as they wish it to. But then comes life-threatening illness. And it disrupts the story that they've been making for themselves and it threatens right into the core of their identity, leaving them at sea as they try to make sense of it and struggling to hold on to any idea that they're still the person that they've always been. And Christians are not immune to this. We can easily absorb more of this outlook than we might think. And it acts as a barrier to trusting in God and waiting patiently for him and finding our true identity in him. It skews our our priorities and makes us lose heart when the going is tough. We can easily come to believe that belief in heaven is a bit odd in today's world. And it's certainly distinctive. And yet, we can overstate this. I read an article this week on spiritual care at the end of life in which a number of atheists were interviewed. Many of them said that they believed in an afterlife. Interesting. That doesn't necessarily mean that they believe in heaven but it alerts us to the fact that we don't need to be overcautious about our faith. We don't need to be as bashful about believing in heaven as we might think we do. People long for there to be more to life than this world alone. God has promised that there is, and we are the trustees of that hope. And we need to let it shape the way that we think about life in this world. Almost every week in my work up at the Coleman Hospital, up the road, I meet meet people who regret leaving, thinking about these things until they're coming to the ends of their lives. And from time to time, I'm given the privilege of praying with people to receive Jesus as their saviour. And it's a tremendous moment when that happens. But when they've left it to the end of life, they have a sense of having missed out, almost of having got in at the last moment. And they wonder whether they should really be doing that. They feel fraudulent and I'm so glad that I can reassure them of the grace of God and his welcome to them at whatever stage they come to that faith. But they still have that feeling of having missed out on something that they could have been living with during the whole of their lives. It's really worth us taking the trouble to learn to live day by day, with this hope of heaven, waiting patiently, year in, year out, for God to act. And if you find it difficult to trust that there is a heaven, and that there is life after death, that one day God will act, think about what happened at Pentecost, the roots of that day go back hundreds of years. In fact, right back to the call of Abraham and God's promise that through him all the nations of the earth would be blessed. Hundreds of years later, from that promise being given, the floodgates opened. God the Holy Spirit was poured out, bringing in people of every nation. The church was born. All the nations of the earth were being blessed. And that has gone on from that day to this and will continue. God had kept his promise. And he'll keep his promise of heaven. Let's see the glory of this faith and see it as distinctive rather than odd. And I'd like to finish with a picture of heaven from this book by Tom Wright, Small Faith, Great God. This is a picture to help us with the weight. Imagine a boy born blind... From his earliest years, he has heard his parents' voices and he has felt the touch of their hands. He knows them, but he has never had any of the hundreds of joys of seeing them. He has never seen the look in his father's eye or the smile on his mother's face. Imagine this boy then having an operation so that for the first time he can see them. Imagine the bandages being taken off and his eyes meeting those of his parents for the first time. That, I suggest, is something of what heaven will be like. Here we know in part we walk by faith and not by sight. We live our lives in obedient Trusting faith, hearing the Father's voice and knowing something of his love. One day the bandages will be off, and then we shall realise that this faith, focused in God's chosen signs and particularly in the Lord's table, has been all along a real foretaste of heaven. Amen.